0: VR training platforms, like the one developed by Fundamental VR and Orbis International, are helping surgeons train over and over before operating on real patients.
1: As you practice each skill, the muscle memory starts to develop.
0: Learn more at meta.com slash impact.
1: The following podcast is a Dear Media production.
0: Hello, and welcome to Raising Good Humans, I'm Dr. Aliza Pressman, and I am really delighted to have with us Dr. Lisa Damore, who's a clinical psychologist and teen girl expert, who has written two New York Times bestselling books. One is Untangled, Guiding Teenage Girls Through the Seven Transitions into Adulthood. And the other is Under Pressure, Confronting the Epidemic of Stress and Anxiety in Girls. These are fantastic books that can really help navigate a difficult time period. And I do want to acknowledge that for the most part, development is development. And the differences between boys and girls, while it may seem wildly vast, is quite small. So I can imagine some of you wondering why I keep having separate episodes based on boys or girls. And I will have another few of those actually coming up. And it's because there is really great research out there and there are some great practitioners who have really focused on some of the nuanced differences. And I think whether you're raising a boy or a girl or a gender non-binary kid, you can get a lot out of these episodes because our kids are not being raised in a vacuum and they do need to understand each other and we need to understand them. So I encourage listeners who didn't think they wanted to hear about teen girls to consider that. Even if you don't have one, your child will definitely have many teenage girls to interact with. And so knowing how to guide them will serve all of you. And also because so much of this is applicable to all teens, not just girls. In fact, this episode is talking a lot about some of the transitions to adulthood that you may notice as early as fifth grade, where kids are kind of pulling back a bit or separating from the family unit and perhaps starting to um, eye roll. Or say something rude, kind of know everything. So we're going to talk about the healthy version and the, the maladaptive versions of parting with childhood, the healthy and unhealthy versions of staying connected. And we're going to discuss a lot of the emotional life of a teenager and how to respond to what can be quite a challenging new era of elevated emotions, we'll call them and how to respond to them. So I think you'll get a lot out of this. I certainly hope you do. And what I think is most helpful is truly how normalizing this conversation is and what I love about Lisa's books. It really does normalize what can feel like a very abnormal interaction where parents can tend to get a little bit uncomfortable with how out of control it all feels. So I hope you enjoy this
1: episode. You know, for for me, I think parents realize they have a teenager on their hands when she doesn't want to be treated like a little girl anymore, doesn't want to be called her little girl name, doesn't want to tell them all the same things, you know, that she used to. And by name, I mean, nickname, you know, often we have sort of, you know, honey bun or, you know, fuzzy duck or something like that. And girls will go from being completely okay to that, to bristling at that, especially in front of, you know, their friends. And often the real sign to a parent that things have shifted is that girls will close their bedroom doors, that they will go in their rooms and close their door for a really long time. And and I think almost invariably to do exactly what they used to do with the door wide open. And, And this for parents, I think comes as a real shock because it's often very much an overnight phenomenon. And they usually don't see it coming and part of why they don't usually see it coming I've come to appreciate is that I think it happens a lot earlier than parents are expecting. I think parents feel like okay teenager 13 I've got till she's 13. Right. But that's actually not what we psychologists believe. We've always understood that adolescence begins at 11 and it's really quite a bit more typical that it's around ages 10 or 11 fifth or sixth grade where girls suddenly push away things that they see as babyish or childlike, including what used to be the same intimate relationship they had with their parents in the past, which is not to say there's not a lot of intimacy left and to come, but parents detect a very distinct shift, I think, around this time.
0: And I want to get back to what you just said about this adolescent thing, you know, good luck with your girls. And it's so negative. Um, And I like how you frame it in a totally
1: different way that that was actually a big part of why I felt I wanted to write untangled is that um it's so easy for people to adopt a kind of um unkind stance towards teenage girls you know they're very easy target and and i think some of it may be because this rejection feels personal which it's not um who knows what really drives the negativity but My aim in writing Untangled was to take all of the stuff that teenage girls do, which is not easy stuff, right? I mean, I don't sugarcoat um, the complexity of this, and to help parents have a way to understand it from their daughter's developmental perspective. And what I say to parents often is, look, adolescence is not something your daughter is doing to you. It is a series of developmental achievements she needs to make. And you get caught up in this, you get pulled into this, you may not always enjoy this, but it's actually much more about her advancing development than it is about her trying to hurt or reject you. The number one thing to do is to not take it personally, to appreciate that she is underway with beginning to sort out the reality that she's not going to live at home together, which I think dawns on children at around age 11, 12. I think that's a fairly stunning awareness that starts to hit them, that they've already lived at home twice as long as they're probably going to continue to live at home. And that she is experimenting with being separate from them. And the way I often think about this is that when kids hole up in their room, I often think they're treating it as like a practice apartment. You know, that they're going to go live in there and they're going to conduct their fifth and sixth grade, seventh grade lives, you know, somewhat independently to experiment with being d- distant. And um, you will be the landlord who inexplicably knocks from time to time. And and I think that's what's so funny about this moment developmentally. And And I've lived it as a mom too, you know, where your child, she's been in there for hours and you knock on the door. And there's this long pause, and then she goes, "Yeah." Then <laughs> you say, uh, "Can I come in?" And then there's another long pause, and she's like, uh, "Okay." And it's such a funny shift in the in the relationship. But the way I sometimes size this up is to think, "Well, okay, let's consider the alternative. The alternative would be that your daughter stays as close and cuddly with you as she ever was." Through ages 10, 11, 12, 13, 14, 15, 16, 17, 18, and then one day looks up and says, Oh, it's time for me to go. Here I go. You know, and it makes this abrupt departure. So I actually prefer to cast it as girls practice moving out by, you know, moving into their room apartments. And then after doing that for a while and experimenting with what it feels like to be separate, they eventually do move out. If there
0: isn't some kind of distancing. That might feel yummy and delicious, but it's not good for them.
1: It's worrisome for me when I hear that there's been no space created between a girl and her parents. I, I have the honor of consulting two days a week at a girls' school in my community. And and we watch girls over time because um, the school goes from pre-primary through grade twelve. And we will sometimes say about a girl like she's great, but like where's her spice? You know, she's she's getting along with all the grown ups. She's sweet as can be, but she's now a ninth grader, and she's got no spice in her. Like where's where's her cynicism? Where's her rejection of us? Where's her you know um, her willingness to to call us on the carpet? You know that that's we'd like to see that. It's a sign of of, of good healthy development. And if it's not showing up, I would be curious about. Where where it is? Why why it's not showing up? Um, I remember being in my practice, and I, I know this is in Untangled. And I had a seventeen year old girl who was on the older edge of seventeen, you know, almost eighteen. And she came in when I I was I was evaluating her. I was getting to know her, and she said, "I tell my mom everything," and she was offering it as though I would think that was a good sign. And I said, "You do, you know?" And and I just I was surprised by that. So we want to see growth and. The reason we want to see it is that they need to actually strengthen their ties to everyone else. And part of what that involves is loosening their ties at home.
0: We know we're going to get pushback, which is separate from, we also know we have to have boundaries. And (laughs) I love your boundaries metaphor. So I think I'm looking for that. (laughs) Is it the swimming pool metaphor you're thinking about? I am. And I don't know if this is the right time for it, but it is my favorite.
1: Yeah. Well, and it's very much at the heart of the parting with childhood and understanding that. So, so the metaphor is this, your daughter is in this metaphor. She's the swimmer. The water is the world and you are the pool. You, the parent are the pool that holds the whole thing together. And your daughter, like all swimmers just wants to be out in the water. She wants to be out playing. She wants to be where the other swimmers are. She wants to be gaining strength. She wants to be having fun. And what this feels like and looks like in family life is that she is completely absorbed in her universe and may or may not even acknowledge you or speak to you very much, you know, for days at a time. And then what happens is that something goes wrong. She becomes, you know, completely exhausted or she gets dunked or something, you know, goes wrong that causes her to feel overwhelmed. And what she does in those moments is she comes scrambling for the wall, and that's you to cling to the wall to catch her breath. And, and I think that what this often looks like in family life is the parent who feels hurt and rejected and missing their child, suddenly you know, their daughter is talking to them, uh, telling them things, often quite upset in the moment. But there's often even a physical component where she is cuddling or climbing in bed with the parent or, you know, something draping herself on her mother. And though the girl is upset, often the parent's experience is like, yay, <laughs> we're, we're together again. You're telling me things. And then, so back to the girl, I think what often happens for the girl is what often happens for kids at swim lessons where they're learning how to swim and they're like, oh, I'm drowning, I'm drowning, I'm drowning. And they get to the wall. And then a few minutes later, they're like, oh, never mind! I'm fine. Like, I'm totally fine. And so I think that's what happens to the girl. She gets her breath back. And then she is like, oh my goodness, I am clinging to the wall like a baby. You know, this is really, you know, regressive and embarrassing for me. And so she shoves off. She pushes away from the parent very aggressively to get back into the water. And so what this looks like is the daughter shifting the moment from being this intimate lovely connected moment to saying something that can often feel to the parent like a real kick to the gut you know so something like okay wait did you wear that outfit today out you know or something like that and and the parent's experience is that this huge distance is accomplished all at once which is exactly what the girl had in mind But it's very, it it can be kind of a whiplash moment for the parent of going from, I haven't seen you, to now you're telling me everything, to now you're giving me a hard time. And in sharing this metaphor, my aim is not to give parents a way to prevent this interaction. I actually don't think it's preventable. And I actually don't think we want to prevent it. We want our girls to use us, right, as sources of stability and and restoration. The aim for me is to help parents not take it personally personally. Which so often happens, and to actually help them savor it while it lasts, because it can be quick. And so, if parents know that this isn't going to go on for very long, it actually gives them a way to enjoy it, expect what's coming. And the last thing to say on this is that I don't believe in letting girls be rude to anyone, including anyone in their own homes. And so, you know, if a daughter does say something like, you know, no offense, mom, but like your breath smells really weird. I think it's really important that the parents say, okay, that's not nice and you know it or something along those lines that doesn't require, you know, an extracted apology or anything like that, but, but that a line is articulated about what's okay and not okay.
0: Right, right, right. And I'm glad you said that because those are two separate things. Like just because you know to expect something and just because you know what, what it's about doesn't mean that you need to sit there and smile and say, yes, yes, what you're doing right now is making a distance between us. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> Exactly. Harnessing emotions is a lifelong process. Yeah. (laughs) I was so excited when Rothy's approached Raising Good Humans to do an endorsement because, first of all, I would endorse Rothy's all day, any day. It's an incredible company. So this is going to blow your mind. Rothy's are made from repurposed plastic water bottles. Rothy's has diverted over $35 That is so incredible. 35 million water bottles from landfills already. And another major bonus, they are fully machine washable, and every time they need a refresh, you can toss them in the washing machine. Rothy's owns and operates their manufacturing workshop where they prioritize sustainability every step of the way. So they ship directly in their shoebox. No unnecessary packaging. They are just a feel-good flat in more ways than one. And... They're the perfect everyday shoe for life on the go. You can walk for miles in them. They're stylish and comfortable, which is very hard to find. And they go with everything from yoga pants to dresses and skirts. They come in ever-changing arrays of colors and prints and patterns. Even the threads are made from repurposed plastic water bottles. They have playful designs that add fun pops of color, and they can make outfits fun and still look polished and professional. Rothy's are seamlessly knit using that, again, I guess I've made this point a lot, but it's pretty remarkable, using thread made from plastic water bottles, so they are ultra comfortable as soon as you slip them on. There is zero break-in period for these shoes. Check out all the amazing styles available right now at rothys.com slash humans. Go to rothys, R-O-T-H-Y-S dot com slash H-U-M-A-N-S to get your new favorite flats. Comfort, style, and sustainability. These are the shoes you've been waiting for. Head to rothys.com humans today. With teenage girls, you see so many emotions. How can we support those emotional outbursts and changes and shifts and passions without diminishing that we
1: understand their experience or that we empathize. This is something I think about constantly because I think it's one of the really harrowing parts of having a teenage girl is the scale of her emotional life. I think very few people are really prepared for this. And I think it comes up fast that what we know is that emotionality in girls peaks on average around age 13. So I think a lot of parents feel like, whoa, we got out of the gate really fast with her acting like a teenager at 11, which I wasn't expecting. And here she is at 13 and meltdowns are nuclear, you know, and and really overwhelming. And And it's funny, one of the things I think about is like the 13-year-old girls are the great equalizer. The kinds of parents who contact me, it doesn't matter how... Great they are at their jobs, or how much power or wealth they have in any other department. Like a 13 year old girl will totally bring those parents to their knees. And it, you can tell, like, I find it like a little bit wonderful (laughs) in its way. But there's a really powerful moment when a teenage girl is having a huge emotional experience. And the powerful moment is how the parent reacts and whether they react with trying to shut it down, or whether they react with fear, or whether they react with panic of their own. And it's funny, I jotted off a handout recently about how to manage a meltdown and I-, I Fantastic. I, well, it's I so funny, it. right? It's so funny and if, and if there's a way, I can send it to you if you want a link to it or something. I'll put it in the show notes. Yeah, and so I, I tried it out in a talk and I, I thought, oh yeah, there's something here. And it, it's like a nine step plan and very rarely should you get past the first three steps. <laughs> And the first step is listen without interrupting. And then the second step is, you know, empathize. Something like, you know, just that sting, so oh, I'm so sorry. And then, you know, the third step, I, you know, it kind of goes from there in this very, very um, systematic, tiny step way. Um, you know, I think the third step is, you know, validate distress. Like, well, you have a right to be upset, you know, something like that. And and every step of the way, giving what you've done a chance to work. And, and I think this is often how we blow it, is that we jump to what is like the sixth step in this, which is like trying to solve the problem. Right. And it doesn't matter if we're right and have a great solution. If you have not listened, offered empathy, validated distress, supported that she's upset and needs some help with coping, express some confidence like that she'll sort this out, she'll get through it. There's no way she's going to take your advice on solutions. It
0: is so similar to, it's still like the advanced version of what you do with young children, frankly. Yeah. So, but you just don't think about it that way with a 13 year old. And the truth is that's exactly what you need to be doing. And we jump right to solving the problem often because we can't
1: handle seeing their distress. Yes. And, and. Mm -hmm. That's exactly right. That it's making us so uncomfortable that we're trying to make it stop. And- What's so funny to me about the handout, it's it's actually extraordinarily simple. I mean, it really is. It's nine steps, you know, with sample language. And yet I think, oh, I could never have written this 25 years ago. You know, that this really is, um, the simplicity of this really is the upshot of thinking about these things a long time and in very particular ways. But I've, I've been delighted by how much reach it's gotten. Like, you know, it seems to have really... Um, Had had on a very nice, like, happy life of its own, and so I think, oh, okay, maybe it's being useful in homes um, as parents are watching their kids have meltdowns. I'd sort of written it up one morning and and shared it at a little presentation I was giving, and people were, you know, it's funny, you never quite know, right? And you have this experience too in your work, like you think about all these different things, and you're often just sort of throwing stuff out to see what feels useful. And I, and I handed it out and parents were like, I'm going to tattoo this on my arm. (laughs) And I thought, oh, maybe there's something there. So I, I threw it out on Facebook. I have a professional Facebook page and I put it up on Twitter and, and I mean, it's, yeah, it's, it seems to have really been what people needed at least in that moment.
0: Well, you know, it's such a fine balance between telling parents exactly like the blueprint of how to respond and giving them tools. To sit through those experiences and think about it in different ways, and um, so sometimes it, it feels wrong to say, "Here's the nine-step plan for yeah. how you respond," and yet it is. It's not a. It's not because you're saying you have to do this to have healthy outcomes. You're just saying, like, I, I find this helpful. Give this a try, and it's it's so concrete. And sometimes we, you know. We're afraid to be super concrete because somehow that seems um, too prescriptive, but it really is such a helpful and well thought out, simple to follow list. Especially if, you know, you tattoo it to your arm, (laughs) you think to yourself, like, when I can go to this place that's, you know, a list, you can check your own emotions because if you can't check your own emotions, when you're having those reactions, you're not going to be able to do anything your
1: teenager. Well, that's, that's exactly right. And I don't think I thought about it this way, which is we can understand theoretically that teenage girls have meltdowns and that's normal and expectable, but when it's happening, it's pretty upsetting. And so having kind of a concrete guide may actually be the most useful thing, even if theoretically you understand this and accept it. And and I think that that may be why it's seems to be hitting, you know, kind of the right tone for families.
0: How about, talking about contending with adult authority, and also if they're not contending with adult authority, how you can kind of help push them
1: along. You know, a lot of the other things I treat in in Untangled, I I do think they've been taken up elsewhere. You know, the kids like to be independent and they get emotional and, and all that. And I really felt like I hadn't seen anyone talk about the fact that in the course of normal development... They question authority because that is a sign of healthy development. You know, it's often that's cast in this kind of, oh, and then, you know, naughty teenagers, you know, mm-hmm. kind of up the establishment with, you know. But I, I love this about teenagers. And I think this is why I'm so drawn to them is that they arrive at a moment. And I would say 14 is pretty often, you know, when you're likely to see this moment where the scales fall away, the scales of childhood fall away, and they suddenly see through grownups with x-ray vision. And a lot of grownups don't like this. A lot of grownups find this very unsettling. But I think I'm a kind of compulsively honest person. And and there's something about teenagers where like you can be as a kid and you can be as a grownup and you cannot get anything past a teenager. Like they will see it and know it and call it for what it is. And and so this gives rise to them suddenly looking around at the grownups like, are "You guys kidding me? Like, you guys are in charge? <laughs> like, I watch the goofy things you do. I watch the things you make up. You tell me I'm going to go outside with wet hair and get a cold. That's not true. I can look it up on the internet. You make up stuff all the time. You know that they they suddenly become highly skeptical of our authority, and they should. They should. I mean that's that's how they're going to be better than we are, and and that's what we want them to be. And so. You can hear it. Like I greet this with great excitement and find it really wonderful about teenagers, but it's not so fun to be on the receiving end of their critique, especially because they're not always nice and they're often dead on. And so, it's hard for adults to know how to react to this at times. But if we see it as normal and expectable, that's one thing we can do. Another thing, and I really mean this: having a teenager can help you grow. And I would say that you're going to have a much time with your teenager if you accept that they will see your warts and they will tell you all about them. You hold them to a standard of doing it in a way that's at least decent and respectful. But the most painful and destructive relationships I've ever witnessed between parent and teenager is when the teenager is pointing out the parent's flaws. And doing so accurately and the parent cannot tolerate it, continues to flex their authority and will not admit their imperfections. This always ends badly. And so there's a lot of ways we can get it right, which is to accept that this is gonna happen. And then if it's not happening, I would wonder why, but I would also be open to the fact that it happens on a lot of different domains, You know, where teenagers will come home and talk at length about the shortcomings of their teachers, or their coaches or you know, someone else in authority. So even if your teenager isn't giving you a hard time, it's likely that they are starting to get the drop on other adults. And that's what I wanna see, that's what I wanna see. You know, the, this contending with adult authority often does take the form of pushing boundaries and doing things that grownups don't want teenagers to do. And that's normal and expectable and we should see it. But like you say, like that can also go to levels that could have really frightening lasting consequences. And so when parents are aware of those things like drugs, drinking, sex, you know, scary driving, out of our fear, we can get pretty um, bossy. You know, we can say things like, don't let me catch you, or if I ever catch you, or, you know, I'm going to bust you and, and hope that our threats will keep kids safe And I feel like it's a moment that is completely understandable in terms of where the parent's coming from, but probably sets things up in a way that's not as useful as it could be. Because the, you know, the reality is teenagers can pretty much do what they want. I mean, they can get away with a lot of stuff. And so I always think it's better if we can cast it in terms of the teenager's responsibility to take very good care of themselves and the parent rooting for that. And so I will say to girls, in any setting, you know, in classroom settings. And when I get to work with them clinically, I'll say, look, do not worry about getting caught. Like the grownups are probably not going to catch you. Your job is to make sure you don't get hurt and and that that's what the focus should be. You know, are you in situations where something bad could happen to you? You need to be taking good care of yourself under those conditions. And that actually puts the power where it actually sits, which is with the child. And speaks to them as mature and self-loving young people, which is what we want them to be. And it also positions the parent as an ally in the kid's safety. So not a cop, but actually, uh, you know, someone who's there to help them along. And so what I say to parents is to say to their, you know, adolescents. Hey, you're going to this party on Friday night. You and I both know that that's a house where things can get a little dicey. What's the game plan? Like how are how do I have confidence that you are safe there? And having an honest conversation about what's happening. And the parent can say, "I'm not sure you're going until you tell me a plan that I feel is a viable one for your safety." And, you know, the parent could say at the end of that, "Yeah, I'm not feeling it. Like you're staying home." Or the parent could say, "All right, you've thought it through." you're not going to drink, you're going to go with kids, you're driving, you know, something like that. You've got your exit. And then the last thing the parent needs to say is if you get to the party and things get funky, call me, I'm coming to get you. And, and that, that in my experience is how we actually keep kids safe is that we do not set ourselves up as the, the, the person who's waiting to come down on them. And what's interesting is that parents can rightly feel that. They're endorsing, they're endorsing this behavior, this behavior if they if acknowledge, they acknowledge that, that teens get into situations that can be dicey, and and I feel like teenagers are smart. They know the parent can both say, "I really don't want you drinking. I don't feel as safe. I worry that it compromises your judgment," and say, "I am well aware there's going to be drinking at this party. So how do we strategize so that you don't get caught up in it?" That those those can live side by side, and if we're going to help teenagers be safe. We need to acknowledge the realities of what they must navigate.
0: It's a typical conversation in the, in the seventh, eighth grade household is when the clothing changes drastically <laughs> um, about sort of what's going on with, you know, like what are you hoping to achieve when you're wearing that? But also a judgment about certain looks that are across the board in every you know everybody else is dressed in a particular way and trying to connect with your child over, like, you know, how inappropriate it is. They're not really eager for that conversation, usually,
1: no. Um, okay, so here's this is such a wonderful universal difficulty in the homes of families raising teenage daughters. And the thing that we have to try to focus on when our daughter comes into the kitchen wearing an outfit that makes us completely uncomfortable. What we need to remember is that what that outfit means to her and what it means to us are a universe apart. And our reaction is driven by being middle age. And in middle age, we have a seasoned understanding of sexuality, sexual signaling, what it means to the world when teenage girls are sending those sexual signals. And then of course, we're also like viscerally protective of our daughters. And so it is very easy for the most progressive feminist, you know, love your body mom, to see her daughter in a pair of shorts and be like, oh, what are you wearing? Right, and, and so that's that's where we're coming from. Where she is coming from, and this is so hard to try to time travel to the mind of a 12-year-old, but we have to do it. She does not understand sexuality the way we do. She does not understand sexual signaling. She does not have 30 years of life experience under her belt about how this looks to the outside world. She, in her mind, is wearing what everybody else is wearing. It looks super cute on them. She saw it in a magazine. It looks super cute there. Um, She may have a beginning understanding of like, there's something kind of racy here or something kind of alluring that still does not mean it means to her what it means to us. And so you can't get anything right in this conversation without first coming to terms with the massive gap between what those short shorts mean to her and what those short shorts mean to us. And the only way to get through this successfully is to appreciate that she cannot see it the way we see it and that she is not doing what well, we fear she is doing <laughs> and is there space to talk
0: about it and to get that message across or you know are we meant to
1: just sit through it i think absolutely we can talk about it but i think we have to start from this like no shame no judgment right. position and say Whoa, those are really short, and we could even say those are cute on you. Like, or they were cute when I bought them two summers ago. (laughs) Right right. after since your growth spurt, they really look different. (laughs) Um, And and then say, here's where I'm struggling. I know you are wearing what everyone's wearing, and it, you know, this is not an unusual outfit. What I'm struggling with is I have information about how the world's going to read that outfit, and. You may be headed into some reactions that you don't want or you're not ready for, or that I am not ready for you have to deal with. One of the things I talk about a lot in Under Pressure is about girls' interactions with boys. And, and the way that book is built is that chapter one is called Coming to Terms with Stress and Anxiety, which is basically a description of how psychologists think about stress and anxiety versus how everybody else does. And the the punchline there is we're much more okay with them right. than everybody else seems to be. It's a big um, <laughs> chapter two is girls at home, which is about the interactions that unfold at home. And some of that is the meltdown stuff, you know, how, how girls really do become overwrought and our response really matters. Chapter three is girls among girls. And, and that's where my thinking continued around the social pressures and the social dramas that girls face. Then chapter four is girls among boys. And and that really gets into the strain that girls experience so often in their interactions with boys. And a lot of it is sort of the middle school version of the Me Too movement. And there's Mm -hmm. a lot more going on in terms of harassment and disrespect in middle and high school than I think adults certainly that I understood and that I think we want to acknowledge. And that chapter four of Under Pressure really is sort of the sequel to chapter six of Untangled because Untangled is about entering the romantic world and how we want girls to feel that they are empowered in their romantic lives and not to feel ashamed about their romantic lives, but to also enter into their lives as adults or you know early adults with a sense that their wishes and wants sit at the center and they can decide from their, you know, what they do and don't feel comfortable with and also learn what their partners do and don't feel comfortable with. And in chapter four of Under Pressure, I really um, spend a lot of time sorting through something that I've become very aware of, which is how often when we talk with girls about their romantic lives, we often cast it in sort of offense defense Teen Mm -hmm. terms. Mm -hmm. And and the terms, you know, in heterosexual terms, the boys are on offense and the girls are on defense. And and so chapter four of Under Pressure is really trying to unpack all of the ways we do this without even realizing it, what the impact is on girls of casting romance as basically like, you know, okay, you better make sure nothing goes wrong here, and how we can cast it totally differently. Chapter five of Under Pressure is about girls at school. And and does pick up on some of what we were talking about in terms of helping girls be efficient and helping girls not get sucked into the grinding perfectionism that we've all seen and we worry about. And then the last chapter is about girls in the culture and, and what our culture asks of girls and how girls try to navigate all of that and how much strain comes with being female in the culture. Um, so that's sort of the big. That's the thirty thousand foot on under pressure.
0: So I know that you mentioned the punchline. I actually, I think it's worth going through because I think without the understanding of what a stress response is and all of the benefits of stress when it's positive stress and yeah. what it means to be, you know, tolerable. What it means to have tolerable stress and what toxic stress actually is. Um, is really important. And the big punchline that's at the beginning of Under Pressure of the many tolerable and positive things that psychologists see when they hear about stress that can yeah,
1: I to, would love to talk about would, it. Because yeah. this for me was yeah. like my mission. When I so when I was writing Untangled, my mission was, hey everybody, I know teenage girls are complicated and confusing and don't always make us feel good, but it all makes sense. Let me show you the kind of sense it makes. You know, yeah. that was the that was what was behind untangled. And for Under Pressure, my mission was, hey, everybody, um, we can relax about the stress and anxiety thing because psychologists are way cooler with the whole thing than everybody else is. And I'll tell you why. And then I'll give you five more chapters of all the stresses and anxieties your daughter will deal with and ways for you to help her through them. But that chapter one about the stresses and anxieties being normal and acceptable, in that chapter, I articulate what you know You know, professionally, what I know professionally, which is that psychologists have always understood that stress is part of life. We have completely accepted that. We know that anything that requires adaptation will be experienced as stressful. And that can be a good thing, like having a baby come home with you, right? That's hugely stressful and also wonderful. And that we really appreciate that what makes things stressful is if they're causing us to grow, that if we're actually having to expand capacity to do something, whether it's, you know, take care of an infant or take on a big new job or deal with the fact that we got fired, right? I mean, those were all stressful things. What we're doing is we're actually expanding our ability to manage stuff. And the metaphor I use all the time is that, you know, stress is like weightlifting, that Anyone who's trying to build muscle knows that you cannot build muscle without lifting uncomfortably heavy weights. And the same is true that kind of what doesn't kill you makes you stronger. The data support that, that when you go through something difficult and are able to weather it, and that's the big key point here, you are subsequently more resilient in the face of new difficulties that actually stress builds capacity and it also builds strength and durability. There's two kinds of stress psychologists don't like. We don't like chronic stress. So, we don't like unrelenting, no break from it, no chance to catch your breath stress. And that can be things like poverty or living with someone who's very troubled. Or um, it can be kids who are in incredibly intense academic settings where they work all the time, there's no downtime, no break, and they really are burning out. We also don't like trauma, that we see trauma obviously as to be avoided and damaging. But short of chronic stress and trauma, psychologists are totally okay with the idea that stress is part of life. We actually like it, (laughs) it helps you grow, it helps you be tougher. And we have the same positive view of anxiety, uh, which I know people are often surprised to hear. But just like we see stress as being part of life, psychologists also fully accept that anxiety is part of life. And the reason anxiety is part of life is that it is a fear response system that is programmed through evolution to help us stay safe. So, if we're driving and somebody's in a lane nearby swerving, we should have an anxiety response. That's actually going to get our attention and help us change lanes or be careful. And we use anxiety all of the time to keep ourselves out of trouble, keep ourselves safe, um, and we use our own internal anxiety to make sure we're on the right track. So. If I've got a big project to do and I'm just messing around on Facebook, like eventually I'll become anxious and that's good. That's a good thing. Um, And as with stress, there's a line that we can cross that psychologists say, okay, now we're not okay anymore. And for anxiety, that line is, if the anxiety doesn't correspond to a threat. So if a person's anxious just for no reason at all, we don't like that. Or if the anxiety is way out of proportion to the threat, you know, where say the person, you know, it's a kid and she's taking a quiz and she's really ready, but she's having a panic response, you know, that that's, we don't like that kind of anxiety. Short of that, we're good with anxiety. And my mission really in writing Under Pressure was to see if I could do anything about this situation. I feel we're finding ourselves in a, as a culture and that situation is that all stress and all anxiety are talked about as though they are pathological. And the upshot of that is that we now have kids who are getting stressed about being stressed and anxious about being anxious. And that's not necessary.
0: Right. No, that's, that's a huge
1: thing that is
0: happening all over and kids are talking about it. They're talking about their own anxiety about having anxiety. And that, yeah. that's such a devastating waste of what could be a really adaptive, resilient response and also lets you have a lens to see clearly what is a real threat. Because I always think, you know, if your response, if you notice in your child yourself that you, you know, think you're being chased by a bear all the time, that's a problem. Yeah. You know, and if that seems to be your reaction, this is a book. And again, I think this happens with, with books. A lot of the time you end up leaving feeling more anxious than you were when you started reading it. So I think this book does a beautiful job of, of having, you know, a clear line between what is adaptive and what is maladaptive. Um, But I think you
1: got that upshot in there that was pretty major. I so love talking about it. And, and I love thinking with, you know, another professional about it. And, and I do hope um, you know, it's funny, I, both with the Untangled and Under Pressure, I sort of feel like, okay, well, psychologist jobs are actually to make people feel better. And so I do hope that um, by laying out a, you know, a particular way of thinking about young people that I can help people feel better and parents feel better.
0: I certainly think you can. And I, I love when psychologists remember that we are here to help people feel better, not to make people feel like shit parents or (laughs) feel like their kids are disasters. So it's, it's a great approach and it's also incredibly practical. And now for the listener questions and answers. The first one is, we try very hard to not talk about bodies in a disparaging or comparative way. We're not good or bad based on the food we eat. Rather, the bodies come in all shapes and sizes and strong and healthy is best. But she hears comments all the time, adults saying they're on diets or commenting on someone else's body, etc. That kind of go against that. For example, my aunt made a comment about my seven-year-old daughter while she was within earshot that it was good that she was tall and thin. I don't want to disparage my aunt in front of her and I don't want to make my child feel bad feelings towards her yet I felt awkward bringing it up later to my daughter because it was such a passing comment. What worries me, though, is that that passing comment adds up and another one comes and another one, and she pays attention to their messages. So my question is, how should one handle a conversation about regular comments children hear from others that perhaps you don't agree with or want to instill in your kids? Well, that's a great question, and frankly, it is always and endlessly surprising to me that in 2019, with all that we know, that people still make comments about their diets or people's bodies or commenting on bodies um, or commenting on their children's bodies because we know that that never ends well and we have a whole culture to prove it. So kudos to you for being aware of it. And then I want to tell you that in general, If you think about other issues or other belief systems that you have, I'm sure you find that there are lots of people and ideas and feelings and thoughts that your child is exposed to that are inconsistent with yours. And so try to feel confident knowing that your values are going to have a huge impact on your child and how you really feel, respond to her, how you really talk about and observe people's bodies, or don't observe them because you are not commenting on them, for example, in an ideal world, will really matter because ultimately she will know that you do not value her because she's tall and thin, that that's not something that occurs to you. And so you can feel better thinking, you know, people might have different political beliefs and talk about them in front of her, but you have set your values clearly. And so she's going to, Understand that those are important in your family. And as she gets older, of course, she's going to learn from her environment as well as from you. And like all things, she's going to develop her own sense of it. And we want that, even if it's not in agreement with how we feel. But hopefully, she's guided well, and that's going to make a big difference. The next question is... Hi, Lisa. I totally love your podcast and I have an 11-month-old baby, so I'm looking forward to listening. Thank you very much. In the last episode called Mindful Discipline, in the questions you said something about a three-year-old not having the developmental capacity to manipulate. Is there a good one-on-one resource you would recommend on developmental stages? I know this is way too early, but I'd like to get a sense of it. Thank you. So a great book or a series of books to think about developmental milestones and experiences and stages for your children is a series called touch points by Dr. Barry Braselton and Dr. Joshua Sparrow. And actually Josh is going to be on next week's podcast. So I try to have guests that I would spontaneously recommend reading their books. So anyway, I also just want to make one comment, which is about manipulation in case anyone didn't hear uh, the last episode, which is that in order to manipulate, you really need to have certain self-regulation skills because you have to act intentionally in a way that helps you get what you want. So that takes years and years to develop. Because you need a pretty big prefrontal cortex. And a three year old is not gonna be very good at that. Most importantly, however, is that if you frame your child's behavior as manipulative, and that actually goes for three or 13, what happens is you're battling with your child and it becomes a power struggle instead of what discipline really needs to be, which is your guidance and boundaries given in a sensitive and appropriate way so that your child can learn to make good choices about his behavior. So when you think of that, you really have to reframe behavior as not manipulation, but either a lack of control. So a child who really, really just does not remember or have capacity to control their behavior or their bodies or their mouths or whatever to do what they need to do, or they don't like it. And so if they don't like the expectation that you have, it doesn't mean you have to change it. It just means they have to get used to that distress and you as a parent have to get used to their feeling distress and that you can't fix it. Thank you for listening. And I'm putting in the show notes a uh, link to Lisa DeMore's tips, her nine stages of responding to emotional outbursts. So look for that. It's such a great, quick guide. And if you enjoyed the show, please don't forget to subscribe, rate, and write a little review if you'd like. Tell me what you like. And please do DM me. I'll continue with questions and answers from listeners on at Raising Good Humans podcast. You can just DM me on Instagram and have a wonderful week. Next week, I'm having a fantastic child psychiatrist, Dr. Joshua Sparrow, who is just wonderful. And he'll be talking about more discipline and behavior with young children. Thank you for listening and have a wonderful week.